Hi, this is Ted O'Connell. I just wanted to let you know real quick that when the time comes for you to begin studying for the USMLE Step 3, we actually now have a USMLE Step 3 subscription podcast. So I encourage you to check that out over at medpreptogo.com. We have sample episodes available. And even if you're studying for Step 2, you may actually find some of this content uh, really useful for your studies. So please do check it out. I'm Ted O'Connell, author of USMLE Step 2 Secrets and Chief Content Officer for Inside the Boards. This is the Step 2 Secrets podcast, where we provide you the high-yield content from Step 2 Secrets in audio format, as well as question breakdowns, so you can study on the go and get back to reclaiming some of your life. This is the question breakdown for the pulmonology chapter. A 24-year-old woman sees her family physician for a non-productive cough which has been present for three days. The patient has also felt feverish with a headache and sore throat. Both of her roommates are having similar symptoms. On physical examination, the patient has erythematous tympanic membranes and pharyngeal erythema with no exudate. There are fine ronchi as well as inspiratory and expiratory wheezes on pulmonary examination. A chest radiograph is ordered and shows diffuse, patchy infiltrates in both lungs. Which of the following is this patient's most likely diagnosis? Is it A, adult-onset asthma, B, haemophilus influenza pneumonia, C, hypersensitivity pneumonitis, D, mycoplasma pneumonia, or E, viral pneumonia? So in this case, we have a young, healthy woman who is presenting with fevers, headache, sore throat, and sick contacts. And then on physical examination, has some signs of pharyngitis and also some wheezes and fine ronchi on the pulmonary exam, and then patchy infiltrates in both lungs, which should immediately make us think of an atypical pneumonia, especially given the whole constitution of her her presentation. So going through each of the options, A, adult onset asthma, the signs and symptoms in this case of a communicable disease really make adult onset asthma an unlikely diagnosis. So we can probably put that choice to the side. Next option is haemophilus influenza pneumonia. This would be uncommon in someone in this age group without obvious risk factors, such as not having been vaccinated or being immunocompromised, which this patient is not. The next choice is C, which is hypersensitivity, pneumonitis. This can actually share many of the signs and symptoms of those seen in this patient, but has a somewhat different radiologic appearance. Hypersensitivity, pneumonitis usually does not have involvement of the middle ear, as we see in this patient with the abnormal tympanic membranes, and it's also not infectious. So this patient's history of of having friends with similar symptoms kind of steers us away from that option. Next choice is mycoplasma pneumonia, which is actually the correct answer here. This patient has pretty classic mycoplasma pneumonia, which is the most common cause of community-acquired pneumonia in young adults. And remember that macrolide antibiotics are the treatment of choice for this condition. And then even though we've already established the correct diagnosis is mycoplasma pneumonia, the the last answer choice is viral pneumonia. This is common and can present somewhat similarly to mycoplasma pneumonia, but this patient's chest radiograph 
makes mycoplasma a, a more likely diagnosis. And so that is the correct choice here, mycoplasma pneumonia. And the learning point on this question is that mycoplasma pneumonia is the most common cause of community-acquired pneumonia in young adults. It's often called walking or atypical pneumonia. Symptoms are often milder than pneumococcal pneumonia. And an x-ray will show bilateral diffuse patchy infiltrates. And with that, we'll get back to our show. This is the pulmonology chapter from USMLE Step 2 Secrets, 5th edition. Question 1. Describe the difference between obstructive and restrictive pulmonary disease on pulmonary function testing. In chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, the functional expiratory volume in one second divided by the total forced vital capacity, that is, the FEV1 over FVC, is less than the normal, approximately 0.7. In restrictive lung disease, the FEV1 to FVC is often normal. FEV1 may be equal in both conditions, but the ratio of FEV1 to FVC is always different. Question 2. What is COPD? COPD is a progressive inflammatory lung disease that causes airflow obstruction. The disease encompasses both chronic bronchitis, which refers to inflammation of the bronchi and bronchioles, and emphysema, which is characterized by destruction of alveoli and poor gas exchange. Patients usually present with chronic productive cough and shortness of breath. Tobacco smoking is a main cause, though air pollution, especially indoor air pollution such as from wood-burning stoves, genetics, and aging contribute to COPD. Typical exam findings include diminished breath sounds, ronchi, and wheezing. On x-ray, look for hyperinflated, hyperlucent lungs, an elongated and narrow mediastinum, and flattened diaphragms. Question 3. How is COPD diagnosed and treated? COPD is diagnosed by pulmonary function tests or spirometry, and severity is graded by the GOLD criteria. The diagnosis is made by an FEV1 to FVC ratio than 70% predicted, and severity is determined based on degree of limitation in FEV1. Initial treatments include use of an inhaled, long-acting beta agonist, a LABA, such as salmeterol, or a long-acting anticholinergic, such as teotropium. Inhaled corticosteroids are sometimes used in more severe cases. Chronic hypoxic patients with ambulatory oxygen saturations less than 88% may be prescribed home oxygen therapy. Smoking cessation, of course, should be recommended and can significantly slow the progression of the disease. Question 4. How are COPD exacerbations treated? Although COPD is a chronic disease, patients can also present with acute exacerbations. Symptoms of an exacerbation include worsening cough, an increase or change in sputum production, and worsening dyspnea. Exacerbations are typically treated with inhaled bronchodilators, a steroid burst, and, for severe cases, a course of antibiotics. Patients may also need respiratory support ranging from supplemental oxygen to intubation. However, patients should not be over-oxygenated because if they are CO2 retainers, their respiratory drive can be inhibited, further compromising ventilation and precipitating hypercarbic respiratory failure. Question 5. How do you recognize and treat asthma? 
Watch for chronic wheezing in allergic, that is atopic children with a family history of asthma, allergies, or eczema. In the acute setting, treat with beta-2 agonists. Use steroids if the attack is severe or does not respond to beta-2 agonists. Inhaled glucocorticoids, the preferred agent, leukotriene modifiers such as zephyrlucast, montelukast, and xyluton, long-acting beta agonists, and chromalin are prophylactic agents and are not used for acute attacks. Phosphodiesterase inhibitors such as theophylline and aminophylline are older agents that are now used infrequently. Do not prescribe beta blockers for asthmatics or patients with COPD. They block the beta-2 receptors that are needed to open the airways. Question 6. What is the concern with the use of long-acting beta agonists, LABAs, in the treatment of asthma? The bottom line is that the U.S. FDA has recommended that LABAs not be used as solo agents in the treatment of asthma in children or adults due to an increased risk of death. The advisory recommends that LABAs not be used alone as initial therapy for asthma of any severity, that they not be added when asthma control is actively deteriorating, that they only be used long-term in patients whose asthma cannot be adequately controlled with other asthma controller medications, and that the LABA be discontinued if possible once asthma control is achieved. Question 7. What is a common cause of wheezing in children under two years of age? Reactive airway disease due to viral infection, commonly respiratory syncytial virus infection, which classically occurs in the winter and causes a fever. Asthma may also be the cause, but is usually associated with a chronic history. Question 8. What should you think if a patient with acute asthma stops hyperventilating or has a normal carbon dioxide level. Beware the asthmatic who is no longer hyperventilating or whose CO2 is normal or rising. The patient should be hyperventilating, which causes low CO2. If the patient seems calm or sleepy, do not assume that he or she is okay. Such patients are probably crashing. They need an immediate arterial blood gas analysis and possible intubation. Fatigue alone is sufficient reason to intubate. Remember also that any patient with COPD may normally live with a higher CO2 and lower oxygen level. Treat the patient, not the lab value. If the patient is asymptomatic and talking to you, the lab value should not cause panic. Question 9. When should you intubate? As a rough rule of thumb, think about intubation in any patient whose CO2 is greater than 50 millimeters of mercury or whose O2 is less than 50 millimeters of mercury, especially if the pH in either situation is less than 7.30 while the patient is breathing room air. Usually, unless the patient is crashing rapidly, a trial of oxygen by nasal cannula, face mask, or BiPAP is given first. If it does not work, or if the patient becomes too tired to use, the use of accessory muscles is a good clue to the work of breathing, then intubate the patient. Clinical correlation is always required. Patients with chronic lung disease may be asymptomatic at lab value levels that seem to defy reason. Alternatively, lab values may look great, but if the patient is becoming tired from increased work of breathing or is significantly altered, intubation may be needed. Question 10. 
What should you do if a patient has a solitary pulmonary nodule on chest radiograph? The first step is to compare the current film with old films if they're available. If the lesion has not changed in more than two to three years, it is very likely to be benign. A nodule that has increased in size on serial imaging should be biopsied or excised. CT scans are used to evaluate and follow a solitary pulmonary nodule. A nodule that has a low probability of being malignant can be followed with serial CT scans. A PET scan is used to evaluate intermediate probability nodules. A nodule that has a high probability of being malignant should be excised. Question 11. What classic clues on the Step 2 exam point to the cause of a solitary pulmonary nodule? In an immigrant, think of tuberculosis. Do a skin test or an interferon gamma release assay, a quantiferon test. In the Southwest United States, think of coccidioides imidis. In a cave explorer or someone with exposure to bird droppings or the Ohio Mississippi River Valleys, think of histoplasmosis. In a smoker over the age of 50, think of lung cancer. Order bronchoscopy and biopsy. In a person under 40 with none of the previous, think of hamartoma. Question 12. What should you know about pulmonary function in the setting of surgery? A baseline chest radiograph is not part of the standard preoperative evaluation, but is often used for patients over age 60 or patients with known pulmonary or cardiovascular disease. Preoperative pulmonary function testing is somewhat controversial, and the question probably will not appear on step two. Overall, the best indicator of possible postoperative pulmonary complications is preoperative pulmonary function. The best way to reduce pulmonary complications postoperatively is to stop smoking preoperatively, especially if it has stopped at least eight weeks prior to surgery. Aggressive pulmonary toilet, incentive spirometry, Adequate but not overly aggressive pain control and early ambulation help to prevent or minimize postoperative pulmonary complications. Lastly, remember that the most common cause of a postoperative fever in the first 24 hours is atelectasis. Question 13 How do you recognize and treat adult respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS? ARDS results from acute lung injury and causes non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, respiratory distress, and hypoxemia. Common causes are sepsis, major trauma, pancreatitis, shock, near drowning, and drug overdose. Look for ARDS to develop within 24 to 48 hours of the initial insult. The classic patient has mottled or cyanotic skin, intercostal retractions, rails or ronchi, and no improvement of hypoxia with oxygen administration. Radiographs show pulmonary edema with a normal cardiac silhouette and no cardiomegaly. Treat with intubation, mechanical ventilation with high percentage oxygen, and positive end expiratory pressure while addressing the underlying cause if possible. Question 14. How is pneumonia diagnosed? The diagnosis of pneumonia is usually based on clinical findings, such as fever, rales, or ronchi, plus elevated white blood cell count and an abnormal chest radiograph consistent with pneumonia. 
Sputum and blood cultures may be obtained, preferably before empiric antibiotic therapy has begun. Question 15. What is the difference between typical and atypical pneumonia? Typical pneumonia is usually caused by bacteria such as Streptococcus pneumoniae or Staphylococcus aureus, the most common causes of pneumonia. Atypical pneumonia may be caused by viral infection, such as influenza or adenovirus, or may be caused by mycoplasma, chlamydia species, legionella, or haemophilus. Now in the book, there's a, a table defining typical pneumonia and atypical pneumonia. So the prodrome in typical pneumonia is short, less than two days, whereas in atypical pneumonia, it's long, more than three days, and can be accompanied with headache, malaise, and body aches. The fever in typical pneumonia is usually high, over 102 degrees Fahrenheit, whereas in atypical pneumonia, it's low. Age is typically over 40 years in typical pneumonia and under 40 years in atypical pneumonia. Chest radiograph in typical pneumonia will show one distinct lobe involved usually, whereas in atypical pneumonia, it's diffuse or multi-lobe involvement. The bugs, Streptococcus pneumoniae is the most common in typical pneumonia, and many different are possible in atypical pneumonia, including haemophilus, mycoplasma, chlamydia, etc. And the antibiotic of choice for typical pneumonia is ceftriaxone or other broad-spectrum antibiotics. And in atypical pneumonia, macrolides such as azithromycin, doxycycline, or certain fluoroquinolones such as levofloxacin and moxifloxacin, which are the respiratory fluoroquinolones. Question 16. What is the difference between aspiration pneumonia and aspiration pneumonitis? Aspiration pneumonia refers to a bacterial infection in the lung. Polymicrobial infections, including both aerobic and anaerobic and enteric organisms, are common. Aspiration pneumonia should be suspected in a patient who has persistent fever, hypoxia, cough, and abnormal chest x-ray for more than 48 hours following an aspiration event. Such aspiration events are usually precipitated by loss of consciousness from underlying neurologic disease such as dementia or stroke, or from intoxication, severe illness, or undergoing general anesthesia on a full stomach. Classically, aspiration pneumonia occurs in the right middle and lower lobes, as the infection is gravity-dependent and the right main stem bronchus is somewhat more vertically oriented than the left. Aspiration pneumonitis very commonly follows an aspiration event and refers to the chemical irritation and inflammation in the lungs caused by aspiration of stomach acid and food. Aspiration pneumonitis can present with cough, dyspnea, hypoxia, low-grade fever, crackles, and coarse breath sounds on lung auscultation and or infiltrates on chest x-ray. Acute symptoms usually, usually resolve within 48 hours and treatment is supportive. Question 17. What are the classic clinical clues on step two for the different causative bugs in pneumonia? In a college student, think of mycoplasma species. Look for cold agglutinins. Or also think of chlamydia species. In an alcoholic patient, think of Klebsiella. And look for the phrase current jelly sputum. And also think of Staphylococcus aureus and other enteric bugs from aspiration. In cystic fibrosis, think of Pseudomonas 
or Staph aureus. In an immigrant, think of tuberculosis. In COPD, think of Haemophilus influenza and Moraxella. In known tuberculosis with pulmonary cavitation, think of Aspergillus. In silicosis, such as metal, granite, or pottery workers, think of tuberculosis. In exposure to air conditioner or aerosolized water, think of Legionella. In an HIV or AIDS patient, think of pneumocystis gerevechiae or cytomegalovirus. If you are shown coilocytosis, and the patient is very immunosuppressed, although strep pneumonia is still the most common cause of pneumonia in HIV-positive patients. In exposure to bird droppings, think of chlamydia cytokai or histoplasmosis. In a child less than one year old, think of respiratory syncytial virus. In a child two to five years old, think of parainfluenza causing croup. Question 18. What should you suspect if a child has recurrent pneumonias? If the pneumonia always occurs in the same spot, especially the right middle and or right lower lobe, it is most likely due to foreign body aspiration. Remember that a foreign body is most likely to go down the right main stem bronchus. This diagnosis should be considered especially if the child has no other signs of immunodeficiency, such as other types of infections or symptoms of cystic fibrosis before or during the episodes. If immunodeficiency is the cause of recurrent pneumonias, the child should have a history of chronic bilateral lung problems and other types of infection. Question 19. What is round pneumonia? Pneumonia may appear round, typically in children, which causes it to simulate a mass. In such cases involving children, assume pneumonia and treat appropriately. A follow-up x-ray can be obtained to confirm resolution, which is not usually required in children who almost never develop lung malignancies. In an adult, a round pneumonia should be viewed with suspicion. It's more likely to be a malignancy, and further workup with a CT scan is typically employed. Question 20. Why should you get a follow-up chest x-ray in all people over age 40 who develop pneumonia? A follow-up chest x-ray is routine in those over 40 who develop pneumonia to make sure it clears after appropriate antibiotic treatment. If pneumonia does not clear by four to six weeks, suspect something other than bacterial pneumonia. The classic culprit is malignancy, specifically bronchoalveolar carcinoma, which is a subtype of adenocarcinoma. In addition, recurrent pneumonias in the same location in an adult may be due to an endobronchial mass, whether benign or malignant. Question 21. What should you know about infant respiratory distress syndrome? Infant respiratory distress syndrome is due to atelectasis from a deficiency of surfactant. It is seen almost exclusively in premature infants and infants of diabetic mothers. Look for rapid labored respirations, substernal retractions, cyanosis, grunting, and or nasal flaring. ABG shows hypoxemia and hypercarbia. Radiograph shows diffuse atelectasis, described as diffuse granular infiltrates. Treat with oxygen, give surfactant, and intubate if necessary. Complications include intraventricular hemorrhage and pneumothorax or bronchopulmonary dysplasia, 
complications of acute or chronic mechanical ventilation. In contrast, transient tachypnea of the newborn is a benign and common condition characterized by isolated rapid breathing that resolves within 72 hours of life and is treated with supportive care. Question 22. What prenatal tests help to determine whether respiratory distress syndrome will occur? Measurement of amniotic fluid in the pregnant mother can determine whether the fetus is producing adequate surfactant. A lecithin to sphingomyelin ratio greater than 2 to 1 or the presence of phosphatidylglycerol in the amniotic fluid indicates fetal lung maturity and a low likelihood of infant respiratory distress syndrome. The fluorescence polarization test reflects the ratio of surfactant to albumin in amniotic fluid and is a direct measurement of surfactant concentration. An elevated ratio indicates fetal lung maturity. Betamethasone is indicated to encourage fetal lung maturity if a preterm delivery at less than 32 weeks gestation is suspected. Question 23. Define diaphragmatic hernia. How is it recognized clinically? A defect in the diaphragm allows bowel to herniate into the chest. Diaphragmatic hernia is mentioned in the pulmonary section because it presents with respiratory difficulty, not gastrointestinal problems. Herniated bowel pushes on the developing lung and causes lung hypoplasia on the affected side. Look for a scaphoid abdomen and bowel sounds in the chest. Herniated bowel can be seen on the chest radiograph. 90% are left-sided. Question 24. How do you recognize and diagnose a tracheoesophageal fistula? How is it treated? The most common type, about 85% of cases, of tracheoesophageal fistula is an esophagus with a blind pouch proximally and a fistula between a bronchus or crina and the distal esophagus. Look for a neonate with excessive oral secretions, coughing or cyanosis with attempted feedings, abdominal distension, and aspiration pneumonia. The diagnosis is made by the inability to pass a nasogastric tube. Alternatively, an injection of air via a nasogastric tube under fluoroscopy shows only the proximal esophagus. Treatment is early surgical correction. Question 25. What is the most common lethal genetic disease in Caucasians? How do you recognize it? Cystic fibrosis, which is an autosomal recessive disease. Always suspect cystic fibrosis in pediatric patients with rectal prolapse, meconium ileus, esophageal varices, recurrent pulmonary infections, or failure to thrive. The classic complaint from the mother is a salty-tasting baby. Patients also commonly have pancreatic insufficiency and infertility. They also may develop core pulmonale, right heart failure. Most states now screen for cystic fibrosis in the standard newborn screening. Question 26. How is cystic fibrosis diagnosed and treated? Diagnosis is made by an abnormal increase in the electrolytes of the patient's sweat, sodium and chloride, and or DNA testing. Treat with chest physical therapy, annual influenza vaccine, fat-soluble vitamin supplements, pancreatic enzyme replacement, bronchodilators, Dornase Alpha, and aggressive treatment of infections with antibiotics that cover staph, 
Haemophilus, and Pseudomonas. Question 27. What should you do if a patient has a pleural effusion? If you do not know the cause of the effusion, consider thoracentesis to examine the fluid in an attempt to determine its etiology. Common tests ordered on pleural fluid include gram stain, culture and sensitivity testing, including tuberculosis culture, cell count with differential, glucose, which is low with infection, protein, which is high with infection, cytology to look for malignancy, amylase if pancreatitis is the suspected cause of the effusion, triglycerides if a chylus effusion is suspected, albumin, and lactate dehydrogenase. These last two tests help to determine whether the fluid is an exudate or is transudate by using light's criteria. That's the end of this chapter. A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, my publishing company behind USMLE Step 2 Secrets, for allowing us to put out this book in audio format. Please check out the other Inside the Boards podcasts over at InsideTheBoards.com, including the main Inside the Boards podcast and the Inside the Boards Study Smarter series for question breakdowns and tips on getting through medical school. And with that, we wrap up today's episode of USMLE Step 2 Secrets.